Today is Good Friday, the commemoration of the death of Jesus on the cross. For the last week or more, we have been examining his last days on the earth, and now we've come to the very last day of his life. Jesus of Nazareth had spent three years as a traveling rabbi and healer. He had healed the sick, the leper, and the lame. He had opened the eyes of the blind. On at least three occasions, he had raised the dead. He preached a message of repentance and love and obedience to God, and he attracted a large following. Then, after Passover, he was betrayed by one of his twelve disciples to the religious rulers, who arrested him in the secrecy of night. Put on three separate trials, none of which could find a charge for which they could convict him. But because of the violence of the mob that had grown outside the governor's palace, Jesus was beaten, scourged, mocked by these Roman soldiers. The people cried out for his death, and he carried his own cross to the top of Mount Calvary, where they crucified him by nailing his hands and his feet to the beams and raising him up high above the crowds where he could suffocate in public agony. And in that humiliation and torment, Jesus Christ gave up his spirit to God the Father and died. This is a gruesome picture to consider. And it's made all the worse by the fact that Jesus did not deserve any of this. He broke no law. He was entirely without sin. And yet they crucified him anyway. Why? Why did Jesus die on the cross? The immediate cause, of course, was the jealousy of the Jewish leaders and the vicious crowd that supported them. But it goes deeper than that. Moments before his arrest, Jesus said in Matthew 26, 56, All this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus was the Son of God. His death had been foretold long ago by the prophets. So then we have to ask that question afresh, knowing that. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Will you read with me Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It is this last verse on which I would like to focus our attention tonight. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. We have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling blood that speaks a better word than that of Abel. The author gives us two reasons here why the death of Jesus was necessary. First, Jesus came to mediate a better covenant. And the author of Hebrews gives a long description of the differences between the old and the new covenants. And secondly, it says the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is, of course, a reference to Cain and Abel, the ancient story from the book of Genesis. To fully understand what this means, we're going to turn to this passage. You can turn to Genesis 4 now if you'd like, and we'll take a closer look. But I can tell you this now. The shed blood of Abel cried out for justice against his brother. But the shed blood of Jesus cries out for mercy to all who call upon him. Jesus died so that he could offer mercy through his own blood to all who stand condemned under the justice of God. 
Most of you are familiar with the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4, so I'm only going to summarize it here, and then I'll read the relevant verses. Cain and Abel were the two sons of Adam and Eve, after they'd been driven from the Garden of Eden. And when they brought sacrifices to the Lord, it said that the Lord accepted the sacrifice of Abel, but refused the sacrifice of Cain. And despite a warning from God, Cain lured his brother into the fields and killed him. The first murder, the first death in the world. God confronted Cain over what he had done. And he said in Genesis chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. The Lord put a curse on Cain that the ground would no longer produce food for him and that he would be driven out from the society of other people. The blood of Abel cried out to God from the ground. The horror of what Cain had done in committing the first murder shocked the whole world. The earth itself was reeling. The metaphor there is that it had been made to drink the blood of man for the first time. The rebellion against God, we call it sin, that had begun in the garden was now deep in the hearts of Adam's children. Now, why did Cain Abel? He first grew angry when he saw that God rejected his offering and accepted his brothers, but why would that lead to murder? This might seem odd, but it's really not when you take the time to consider it. John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Hear this. Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Why did Cain kill Abel? Let me read that again. Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Cain resented the light that Abel's life shed upon his own. Cain thought of himself as one way, but when he was compared to Abel before God, he fell short. This attitude is present in all of us. We come up with justifications for our actions and attitudes. We tell ourselves that the way I am cannot be helped. The way I was raised has made my sin inescapable. But then you run up against somebody who does not live the way you do. Somebody who maybe even has gone through the same things you went through, but did not allow them to bring them down like you have. Maybe you've even said, it's impossible. There's no such thing as a good person. And you live your life by that and you cling to that for hope. And then you actually meet a good person. That can absolutely shatter the image that a person has of themselves. And the results can be deadly. The Apostle John put it this way in John 3, verses 19 through 20. This is the judgment. Do you want to know why God judges people? Do you want to know what the judgment over humanity is? Right here. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked hates the light, and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Abel's righteousness exposed the evil in Cain's heart. And when Cain grew angry with Abel, God spoke to him and he's urging him, get control of yourself because that attitude that has been exposed by this situation with Abel could have dire consequences if you don't get a handle on it. Unfortunately, Cain did not listen. And that flaw in his heart became the defining act of his life. He tried to eliminate the object of comparison rather than make a change. But you know as well as I do, the destruction of a standard does not change the rules. You might not like the way you look in the mirror, but if you break the mirror, that doesn't change anything. 
It's just now you can't see. Abel was no longer there to expose Cain's faults, but Cain was still the same person. This is true at the highest level because our standard for right and wrong is not one another. You can't judge whether or not you're a good person by comparing yourself to other people. God himself is our standard. Abel was gone, but there was still God and his righteousness for Cain to be compared to. And after Cain murdered his brother, it was God's righteousness that stood in judgment of him. What is the word, as the author of Hebrews would put it, that the blood of Abel spoke? It was justice. The ground itself cried out for justice. We love to talk about justice. Everybody should get what they deserve. It should be fair. But there are a few things more terrifying than true, unmitigated fairness. The fair thing for Cain would have been him to die as well. Blood cries out for blood. But this would have been true, remember, regardless of whether Cain killed Abel or not. The standard of righteousness against which humanity is measured is not one another, but it is God. And that is a standard of perfection, which none of us can meet. There's a drive within each of us to want to shrink away from the light, to smash the mirror so that we cannot be exposed for who we really are. That drive is called sin and it is internal. Sin is internal. Cain did not murder his brother until they were in the fields, but he had a murderous heart a long time before he actually did the deed. In the same way, we all have that wickedness in our hearts. And don't tell me you don't. It might lie dormant for a while. You might even be able to convince yourself that it's not there. But given the proper trigger and the right opportunity, sin will rear its ugly head and show you who you really are on the inside. You've probably had these moments before where you step back and you look at yourself and go, what am I? We try to excuse that by comparing ourselves to one another. Well, I'm not as bad as her, not as bad as him. But that's unacceptable. The standard is God and his righteousness. And we've all missed the mark. The wages of sin is death, according to Romans 6.23. The soul who sins shall die, said Ezekiel. There's no escaping it. The penalty for sin is eternal death in hell. Eternal punishment for an eternal transgression. I think that's kind of harsh. No, think through this with me. How many lives have you broken through your actions? How much joy have you stamped out? How many opportunities have you had a chance to show love to somebody and for selfish reasons you held it back? How many lies? How much deception? How much selfishness? The blood of Abel cries out for justice. Well, you might ask, is there anything to be done about this? As Cain did, we cry out to God. Cain said, Lord, I can't take that. Help me, please. We ask if there's anything that might be done to alleviate our punishment. After the death of Abel, humanity spread across the globe and wickedness got worse and worse and worse. If you were to try to tell the story of every murder after Abel, it would be a very, very long Bible. But out of his kindness... God chose a nation for himself through whom he would demonstrate not only the sinfulness of sin, but he would provide the opportunity for atonement or covering of that sin. In the book of Exodus, you know the story, God used Moses to bring the children of Israel out of slavery in the land of Egypt. Through many dangers, he brings them to Mount Sinai where he made a covenant with them. 
A covenant is a solemn promise. It's a contract with obligations and promises and penalties. The Lord promised to be their sovereign, blessing, protecting God if they would obey him and be his people. And on that first day, he gave them 10 simple commandments. You familiar with these? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself any graven or carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. That was the standard of righteousness to which God was going to hold his people. Those all seem like reasonable rules to me. But consider that list for a second. What a list. Could you keep that list? Have you gone your whole life till now without lying once, stealing once, coveting once, or blaspheming once? Forget what happened before. If you started right now, could you live that way for the rest of your life? Of course not. The standard always shows us for who we really are. It's a mirror. And neither could they. The Israelites couldn't keep it either. That was the point. The law, as it is called, existed to prove to them beyond a shadow of a doubt that they had missed the mark, that they were sinners. It was to be that constant reminder like Cain had when Abel's sacrifice was accepted that they were inadequate. And it teaches us the same lesson. We resent the standard of righteousness because we know that we are not righteous. And so the Lord gave them more. He gave them an entire social structure to help enforce these things. He gave them a system of religious observance, a means by which they could come before him and have their sins covered. But you'll remember the wages of sin is what? Death. Our sin cries out with the blood of Abel for justice. That's why the atonement for sins that God provided in the temple had to be secured with blood. With blood. Blood and death. Every time a sin was committed, the Israelite was to come to the temple and offer the sacrifice of an animal with no blemishes. The feasts and the Sabbaths were soaked in blood. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The blood of sin cries out for more blood. And so for hundreds of years, the Jews worshipped God, stained with the shed blood of innocent animals. And something's not quite right, is it? We hear that and we squirm. I thought we were looking for justice. How can the death of an animal cover the sin of a man or a woman? Well, you might be onto something. Imagine coming to the temple year after year. You offer a lamb or a goat or a bull. You come home and the worshiper participated in the sacrifice. You were washing the blood off of your hands as you bring it home. And then you come back again the next year and the next year and the next year. And every time you sin, you know that you've got to go before the Lord and provide a sacrifice to atone for it. And slowly you might begin to realize, I can offer as many of these offerings as I want, but it is not solving the problem. The problem is me. The law doesn't just make me look bad. The law shows me that I am bad, that I'm rotten to the core. You could hold up that standard or any other standard, and I wouldn't be able to keep it. And if I'm a sinner, not just in the things that I do, but in the very fiber of my being, how can I expect anything other than condemnation when I stand before God, regardless of how many animals I sacrifice? That was exactly the point. God was teaching a lesson, a long-spanning historical lesson that took centuries to learn. 
And even then, only a very few got this. Some of the prophets and the poets of the Old Testament got this. Samuel said in Samuel 15, 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. David wrote in Psalm 51, You will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The writer of the Hebrews puts it even more bluntly in Hebrews 10.4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The old covenant with all its glory could only be a temporary fix. It served an important purpose though. It held up a standard of righteousness to God's people to show us that the problem is with us on the inside, not the outside. And it demonstrated to the people the severity of their sin by having them sacrifice an animal in order to cover their own trespasses. The law served to amplify what was spoken by Abel's blood. Justice, blood for blood. And as the centuries ticked on by, the people of God began to realize that if there was going to be any hope of forgiveness, it would have to come through God intervening himself. Because there's no way we're ever going to be able to keep his standards. So then let us jump ahead to Good Friday. Jerusalem is full of men and women come to worship at the temple. The night before, they had commemorated the deliverance out of Egypt by the sacrifice of a lamb, a meal of unleavened bread and bitter herbs. It was a sacred time of celebration and reflection. But as you woke up that morning, you might have heard a disturbance over at the governor's palace. A crowd is gathered and they're all looking into the courtyard where the chief priests and the elders of the people are arguing with the Roman governor sitting on his judgment seat. And then to an angry roar from the crowd, a man is brought forward. He can barely stand. His clothes have been stripped from him. His arms and legs are shackled together and his back has been laid open by the cruel metal-studded scourge with which they would have whipped him. Around his head, the branches of a thorn bush have been pressed together in mockery of a crown. Behold your king, says the governor. But the people shout him down with manic voices. Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate makes one more attempt to appeal to these Jews, but they shout him down once more. A riot is starting. Finally, Pilate collapses back on his throne, calls for a basin of water, and washes his hands. With a wave of his arm, he leaves with his attendants, and Jesus of Nazareth is delivered over to the praetorium for crucifixion. Why was Pontius Pilate so reluctant to condemn Jesus to death? Because according to Matthew 27, 18, he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Jesus died for the same reason Abel did. The religious rulers were jealous of him, but more than that, the land of Israel had had enough of him. By his very life, he shamed them. By his teachings, he exposed their hypocrisy. Even by his meekness and enduring this trial, he blew apart the lies that they told themselves to justify their own behavior. The guilt was too much. And so the sons of darkness lied, bribed, and betrayed so that they might stamp out the light of the world forever. None of us can escape responsibility for what those men did. You cannot blame the Jews. You cannot blame the Romans. You cannot blame a bygone generation. What was in their hearts is in your heart. 
How many times have you raged against the beauty of God's law because it stands in judgment of your own inadequacies? How violently have you argued against the existence of God or the existence of morality itself in order to escape the guilt that plagues you every time you turn off the lights to go to sleep? You were not there, but you have the same sin in your heart that drove them to shed the blood of Jesus. And blood cries out for blood. But wait, something's different this time. We read in Hebrews 12, 24, We have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What word is that? While Abel's blood, a symbol of all our wrongdoing, cries out for justice, the blood of Jesus cries out for mercy. The death of Jesus was no accident. It was not some catastrophic miscarriage of justice that foiled God's eternal plan. As we said before, all of this was done to fulfill what had been spoken in the prophets. Isaiah said in his book, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He continues, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The blood of animals could not atone for sin, but the blood of the Son of God is mighty to save. Jesus Christ was not just a carpenter from Nazareth. He was God-made flesh. The living God took on humanity and lived among us. He taught us a better way. He showed us what love looks like. And he commanded us to repent. He didn't relax the commandments of Moses. Don't let anybody tell you that Jesus told us we didn't have to follow the commandments of the law. He intensified them. He held up a standard that was greater than that of Moses. He said, you've heard it was said, you shall not murder. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother is liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be subject to hellfire. Jesus said that. He reminded us that the standard was perfection. And therefore, none of us could meet it. But he could. Because he was no mere man. He was God made flesh. And his death was the cosmic sacrifice. The Lord had taught us through centuries of Moses' law that he would accept a perfect sacrifice in payment for sins. But until Jesus, there was no acceptable sacrifice. The blood of Abel, the guilt of our sin, cried out for justice. It cried out for blood. And so God himself decided he would take the punishment. He, Jesus, who owed nothing to the blood of Abel, freely gave his own life to die in our place as a perfect sacrifice. And on Good Friday, the justice of God was satisfied. And the cry of the blood of Abel was silenced. Now the blood of Jesus cries out a better word. Mercy! Mercy from the very hand of God. Now you might ask, well, how can I know this is true? How can I know that Jesus died as a sacrifice in my place? Well, in Matthew 27, 
It tells us that when Jesus hung from the cross, when they put him up on that cross, darkness rolled over the whole land in the middle of the day. And that when he died, crying out with a loud voice, the cry of Jesus, his death cry, was matched by the shaking of the very earth and the rocks split open and the veil of the temple was ripped in two and tombs burst open. The earth, as it had cried out over the blood of Abel, was crying out over the blood of Jesus. You say, is that enough? It was enough to convince the soldiers that killed him. Truly, they said in Matthew 27, 54, this was the son of God. But better than that, on Sunday morning, after Jesus had been buried and lain in the tomb, he rose from the dead. He came out of that tomb and appeared to his disciples who went around the world proclaiming the message of salvation to this day. And I declare the same message to you tonight. In order to cover the sins of Israel, God made a covenant with them. This was intended to teach them that no matter what standard they were held to, they would always fail. And that the blood of their failure required the shedding of more blood. All of this led to the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, which means promised one. When he died on that cross, he fulfilled the promise of the law and its sacrifices, and he inaugurated a new covenant between man and God. He is the mediator of that new covenant. No longer are we tied to externalities and vain rituals. Instead, the Lord offers us the atonement for sins freely through the blood of his Son. The old covenant was a temporary fix. The new covenant is a permanent solution. Whereas the old covenant required every sin to be covered by the death of an animal, now there has been one sacrifice, once for all, the blood of Jesus that covers every sin. The Lord in his mercy offers you forgiveness of sins. Rather than writing on tablets of stone, God sends his Holy Spirit into our hearts that he might speak the word to us directly. Rather than looking forward in desperation to a hope that may or may not come, we can look back with gratitude and relief and look forward with hope because our future is no longer eternal death in hell, but everlasting life in heaven. Well, what does it take? What do I got to do to enjoy these blessings? What do I got to take to get on board? Nothing but faith. It's the free gift of God, his grace given to you. If he had to give you something to do, you couldn't do it. You can't meet the standard. That's the whole point. God did everything that was necessary to bring you to himself. Now all you need to do is come. Come and lay down your old self and let it die with Jesus on that cross. Believe that what Jesus did is enough to cover anything that you have done and enter into the joy of knowing that you have been forgiven. And don't say to yourself, I've done too much, it's too late for me. The Lord has saved terrorists and prostitutes and murderers and thieves and traitors. He can save you. And when you enter into that joy, you will receive the blessing of God's Holy Spirit who will come into your heart and begin to change it from the inside out. God wants to purge the heart of Cain right out of you and lead you into a new abundant life. It's an internal renewal and it's available to you if you will but come in humility, repent, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't cost you a dime. We don't want anything from you. We are offering you the gift of God in Jesus' name. Blood cried out for blood and so God offered his own. 
justice has been satisfied. The blood of Abel lies at peace now because the Son of God has paid the price. Now the blood of Jesus speaks a better word to us. Mercy. We are all in need of mercy. We've all sinned against God. And the motivation that causes us to sin is still there. And tragically, that same sin will keep many people stubborn. Stubborn in their rebellion to refuse to come and receive the forgiveness of God. Let me tell you, hell awaits those who insist on paying for their own sins. But there's no need for that. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16. Did you catch that? God loves you. That's why he went to all this trouble in the first place. God would have been perfectly within his rights to end it all the minute that Cain killed his brother. But he didn't. Do you know why? It's good news. Because he looked into eternity and saw you. And he saw everything about you. And in his heart, he was filled with love for you. And he said, I will do whatever it takes to save them from themselves. You might have to fight and rage and shout to make yourself feel worthy. You might have to be loud and brash in everybody's face to keep anybody from looking down on you. You might post things online every minute of every day to make you feel good. But let me tell you, you don't have to do that. God's not looking for you to be worthy. He knows everything about you. He knows who you are. He just wants you to come just as you are without doing anything first and saying, all right, Lord, it's yours. My life belongs to you now. Take me, change me, do whatever you got to do. Let go of the sin that's holding you down like an anchor in the sea. His love is ready to save you now, today. Let me make one more interesting point before we close here. The very earth cried out to God because of the blood of Abel. The ground rocked when Jesus died. We read of the earth groaning one more time. In Romans 8.19, it says, The creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. That says that the, the earth knows that until God's people are glorified and God sets the world to right with his people, there is no hope. So, according to the Bible, the world is literally waiting for you. God is waiting for you. He's been waiting your whole life for you to come and receive his gift of salvation. It's free. Come and die with Jesus, and then you can walk in the newness of life that he provides, that he bought with his very own blood.